CD6 Oh dear, this is so complicated, said Otto. Look, the philosopher Kling says the mind has a dark side and a light side, you see, and dark light is seen by the dark eyes of the mind. He paused again. Yes, said Sacharissa politely. I was waiting for the roll of thunder, said the vampire, but alas, this is not Uberwald. You've lost me there, said Sacharissa. Well, you see, if I was to say something portentous like the dark eyes of the mind back home in Uberwald, there would be a sudden crash of thunder, said Otto. And if I was to point at a castle on a towering crag and say, yonder is the castle, a wolf would be bound to howl mournfully, he sighed. In the old country, the scenery is psychotropic and knows what is expected of it. Here, alas, people just look at you in a funny way. All right, all right. It's a magical light that takes uncanny pictures, said Sacharissa. That's a very newspaper way of putting it, said Otto politely. He showed her the iconograph. Look at this one. I wanted a picture of a dwarf working in the patrician study, and I got this. The picture was a wash of blurs and swirls, and there was a vague outline of a dwarf lying down on the floor and examining something. But superimposed on this was quite a clear picture of Lord Vetinari. Two pictures of Lord Vetinari, each figure staring at the other. Well, it's his office, and he's always in there, said Sacharissa. Does the magic light pick that up? Maybe, said Otto. We know that what is physically there is not always what is really there. Look at this one. He handed her another picture. Oh, that's a good one of William, she said, in the cellar, and that's Lord de Word standing just behind him, isn't it? Is it? said the vampire. I don't know the man. I do know that he was not in the cellar when I took the picture. But you only have to talk to Mr. William for any length of time to see that, in a way, his father is always looking over his shoulder. That's creepy. Sacharissa looked around the cellar. The stone walls were old and stained, but they certainly weren't blackened. I just saw people, men fighting, flames and silver rain. How could it rain underground? I do not know. That's why I study dark light. Noises above suggested that William and Goodmountain had returned. I wouldn't mention this to anyone else, said Sacharissa, heading for the ladder. We've got enough to deal with. That's creepy. There was no name outside the bar because those who knew what it was didn't need one. Those who didn't know what it was shouldn't go in. Ank Morpork's undead were, on the whole, a law-abiding bunch, if only because they knew the law paid them a certain amount of special attention. But if you walked into the place known as Beers on a dark night and had no business there, who would ever know? For the vampires, those, that is, who weren't gathered around the harmonium at the temperance mission, nervously singing songs about how much they liked cocoa, it was a place to hang up. For the werewolves, it was where you let your hair down. For the bogeymen, it was a place to come out of the closet. For the ghouls, it did a decent meat pasty and chips. All eyes, and that was not the same thing as the number of heads multiplied by two, turned to the door when it creaked open. The newcomers were surveyed from dark corners. They wore black, but that didn't mean anything. Anyone could wear black. They walked up to the bar and Mr Pin rapped on the stained wood. The barman nodded. The important thing he'd found was to make sure ordinary people paid for their drinks as they bought them. It wasn't good business to let them run a tab. That showed an unwarranted optimism about the future. "'What can I?' he began, before Mr Tulip's hand caught him round the back of the neck and rammed his head down hard on the bar. "'I am not having a nice day,' said Mr Pin, turning to the world in general, "'and Mr Tulip here suffers from unresolved personality conflicts. "'Has anyone got any questions?' An indistinct hand rose in the gloom. Er, uh, what, Cook? said a voice. Mr. Pin opened his mouth to reply and then turned to his colleague, who was examining the bar's array of very strange drinks. All cocktails are sticky. The ones in beers tended to be stickier. It says kill the cook, said the voice. Mr. Tulip rammed two long kebab skewers into the bar where they vibrated. What cooks have you got? he said. It's a good apron, said the voice in the gloom. 
It is the ing envy of all my friends, Mr. Tulip growled. In the silence, Mr. Pin heard the unseen drinkers calculating the likely number of friends of Mr. Tulip. It was not a calculation that would involve a simple thinker taking off their shoes. All right, said someone. Now, we don't want any trouble with you people, said Mr. Pin. Not as such. We simply wish to meet a werewolf. Another voice in the gloom said, Vi. Got a job for him, said Mr. Pin. There was some muffled laughter in the darkness, and a figure shuffled forward. It was about the size of Mr. Pin. It had pointy ears. It had a hairstyle that clearly continued to its ankles, inside its ragged clothes. Tufts of hair stuck out of holes in its shirt, and densely thatched the backs of its hands. Part werewolf, it said. Which part? That's a funny joke. Can you talk to dogs? The self-confessed part werewolf looked around at its unseen audience, and for the first time Mr. Pin felt a twinge of disquiet. The sight of Mr. Tulip's slowly spinning eye and throbbing forehead were not having their usual effect. There were rustlings in the dark. He was sure he heard a snigger. Yup, said the werewolf. The hell with this, thought Mr. Pin. He pulled out his pistol bow in one practised movement and held it an inch from the werewolf's face. This is tipped with silver, he said. He was amazed at the speed of movement. Suddenly a hand was against his neck and five sharp points pressed into his skin. This ain't, said the werewolf. Let's see who finishes squeezing first, eh? Yeah, right, said Mr. Tulip, who was also holding something. That's just a barbecue fork, said the werewolf, giving it barely a glance. You want to see how ing fast I can throw it, said Mr. Tulip. Mr. Pin tried to swallow, but only got halfway. Dead people he knew didn't squeeze that hard, but it was at least ten steps to the door, and the space seemed to be getting wider by the heartbeat. Hey, he said, there's no need for this, right? Why don't we all loosen up? And hey, it would help me to talk to you if you were your normal shape. No problem, my friend. The werewolf winced and shuddered, but without at any point letting go of Mr. Pin's neck. The face contorted so much, features flowing together, that even Mr. Pin, who in other circumstances quite enjoyed that sort of thing, had to look away. This allowed him to see the shadow on the wall. It was, contrary to expectations, growing. So were its ears. "'Any questions?' said the werewolf. Now its teeth seriously interfered with its speech. Its breath smelled even worse than Mr. Tulip's suit. "'Ah!' said Mr. Pin, standing on tiptoe. "'I think we've come to the wrong place.' I think that also. At the bar, Mr. Tulip bit the top off a bottle in a meaningful way. Once again the room was filled with the ferocious silence of calculation and the personal mathematics of profit and loss. Mr. Tulip smashed a bottle against his forehead. At this point he did not appear to be paying much attention to the room. He just happened to have a bottle in his hand, which he did not need any more. Putting it on the bar would have required an unnecessary expenditure of hand-eye coordination. People recalculated. "'Is he human?' said the werewolf. "'Well, of course, human is just a word,' said Mr. Pin. He felt weight slowly press down onto his toes as he was lowered to the floor. "'I think perhaps we'll just be going,' he said carefully. "'Right,' said the werewolf. Mr. Tulip had smashed open a big jar of pickles, or at least things that were long, chubby and green, and was trying to insert one up his nose. "'If we wanted to stay, we would,' said Mr. Pin. Right, but you want to go. So does your friend, said the werewolf. Mr. Pin backed towards the door. Mr. Tulip, we have uh, business elsewhere, he said. She's take the damn pickle out of your nose, will you? We're supposed to be professionals. That's not a pickle, said a voice in the dark. Mr. Pin was uncharacteristically thankful when the door slammed behind them. To his surprise, he also heard the bolts shoot home. Well, that could have gone better, he said brushing dust and hair off his coat. "'What now?' said Mr. Tulip. "'Time to think of a plan B,' said Mr. Pin. "'Why don't we just ing it, people, until someone tells us where the dog is?' said Mr. Tulip. "'Tempting,' said Mr. Pin. "'But we'll leave that for plan C.' "'Bagrit!' They both turned. "'Bent treacle edges, I told them,' said foul old Ron, lurching across the street, a wad of timeses under one arm and the string of his nondescript mongrel in his other hand. He caught sight of the new firm. Hargle Garley Europe, he said. They are Benip. You gents want a paper? It seemed to Mr. Pin 
but the last sentence, while in pretty much the same voice, had an intrusive not-quite-right quality. Apart from anything else, it made sense. "'You got some change?' he said to Mr. Tulip, patting his pockets. "'You're gonna in buy one,' said his partner. "'There's a time and a place, Mr. Tulip, a time and a place. "'Here you are, mister.' "'Millennium, hand and shrimp, bagrit,' said Ron, adding. "'Much obliged, gents.' Mr. Pin opened the times. "'This thing has got—' He stopped and looked closer. "'Have you seen this dog?' he said. "'Shish!' He stared at Ron. "'You sell lots of these things?' he said. "'Cradle of slops, I told him. "'Yeah, hundreds.' There it was again, the slight sensation of two voices. "'Hundreds,' said Mr. Pin. He looked down at the paper-seller's dog. It looked pretty much like the one in the paper, but all terriers looked alike. Anyway, this one was on a string. "'Hundreds,' he said again, and read the short article again. He stared. "'I think we have a plan B,' he said. At ground level, the newspaper-seller's dog watched them carefully as they walked away. "'That was too close to comfort,' it said, when they turned the corner. Foul old Ron put down his papers in a puddle and pulled a cold sausage from the depths of his hulking coat. He broke it into three equal pieces. The Ankh-Morpork Times The truth shall make ye Fred. Extra. Have you seen this dog? $25 reward for information. William had dithered over that, but the watch had supplied quite a good drawing, and he felt right now that a little friendly gesture in that direction would be a good idea. If he found himself in deep trouble head downwards, he'd need someone to pull him out. He had rewritten the patrician story too, adding as much as he was certain of, and there wasn't much of that. He was, frankly, stuck. Sacharissa had penned a story about the opening of the Inquirer. William had hesitated about this too, but it was news after all. They couldn't just ignore it, and it filled them space. Besides, he liked the opening line which began, A would-be rival to Ank Morpork's old established newspaper, The Times, has opened in Gleam Street. "'You're getting good at this,' he said, looking across the desk. "'Yes,' she said. "'Now I know that if I see a naked man I should definitely get his name and address, "'because,' William joined in the chorus, "'names sell papers.' "'He sat back and drank the really horrible tea the dwarfs made. "'Just for a moment there was an unusual feeling of bliss. "'Strange word,' he thought. "'It's one of those words that describes something that does not make a noise, "'but if it did make a noise would sound just like that. "'Bliss!' It's like the sound of a soft meringue melting gently on a warm plate. Here and now he was free. The paper was put to bed, tucked up, had its prayers listened to. It was finished. The crew were already filing back in for more copies, cursing and spitting. They'd commandeered a variety of old trolleys and prams to cart their papers out into the streets. Of course, in an hour or so, the mouth of the press would be hungry again, and he'd be back pushing the huge rock uphill, just like that character in mythology. What was his name? Who was that hero who was condemned to push a rock up a hill, and every time he got it to the top it rolled down again, he said. Sacharissa didn't look up. Someone who needed a wheelbarrow, she said, spiking a piece of paper with some force. William recognised the voice of someone who still has an annoying job to do. What are you working on, he said. A report from the Ankh-Morpork Recovering Accordion Player Society, she said, scribbling fast. Is there something wrong with it? Yes, the punctuation. There isn't any. I think we might have to order an extra box of commas. Why are you bothering with it, then? Twenty-six people are mentioned by name. As accordionists? Yes. Won't they complain? They didn't have to play the accordion. Oh, and there was a big crash on Broadway. A cart overturned and several tons of flour fell onto the road, causing a couple of horses to rear and upset their cartload of fresh eggs, and that caused another cart to shed thirty churns of milk. So... "'What do you think of this as a headline?' "'She held up a piece of paper on which she'd written, "'City's Biggest Cake Mix-Up.' "'William looked at it. "'Yes, somehow it had everything. "'The sad attempt at humour was exactly right. "'It was just the sort of thing that would cause much mirth "'around Mrs. Arcanum's table. "'Lose the second exclamation mark,' he said. "'Otherwise I think it's perfect. "'How did you hear about it?' "'Oh, Constable Fiddiment dropped in and told me,' said Sacharissa. "'She looked down and shuffled papers unnecessarily.' "'I think he's a bit sweet on me, to tell you the truth.' "'A tiny, hitherto unregarded bit of William's ego instantly froze solid. "'An awful lot of young men seemed happy to tell Sacharissa things. "'He heard himself say, "'Vimes doesn't want any of his officers to speak to us.' "'Yes, well, I don't think telling me about a lot of smashed eggs counts, does it?' 
Yes, but... Anyway, I can't help it if young men want to tell me things, can I? I suppose not, but... Anyway, that's it for tonight. Sacharissa yawned. I'm going home. William got up so quickly he skinned his knees on the desk. I'll walk you there, he said. Good grief, it's nearly a quarter to eight, said Sacharissa, putting on her coat. Why do we keep on working? Because the press doesn't go to sleep, said William. As they stepped out into the silent street, he wondered if Lord Vetinari had been right about the press. There was something compelling about it. It was like a dog that stared at you until you fed it. A slightly dangerous dog. Dog bites man, he thought. But that's not news. That's olds. Sacharissa let him walk her to the end of the street where she made him stop. It'll embarrass Grandfather if you're seen with me, she said. I know it's stupid, but neighbours, you know, and all this guild stuff. I know, um... The air hung heavy for a moment as they looked at each other. Um, I don't know how to put this, said William, knowing that sooner or later it had to be said, but I ought to say that, though you are a very attractive girl, you're not my type. She gave him the oldest look he'd ever seen, and then said, That took a lot of saying, and I would like to thank you. I just thought that with me and you working together all the time... No, I'm glad one of us said it, she said. And with smooth talk like that, I bet you have the girls just lining up, right? See you tomorrow. He watched her walk down the street to her house. After a few seconds, a lamp went on in an upper window. By running very fast, he arrived back at his lodgings just late enough for a look from Mrs. Arcanum, but not so late as to be barred from the table for impoliteness. Serious latecomers had to eat their supper at the table in the kitchen. It was curry tonight. And one of the strange things about eating at Mrs. Arcanum's was that you got more leftovers than you got original meals. That is, there were far more meals made up from what were traditionally considered the prudently usable remains of earlier meals, stews, bubble and squeak, curry, than there were meals at which those remains could have originated. The curry was particularly strange, since Mrs. Arcanum considered foreign parts only marginally less unspeakable than private parts, and therefore added the curious yellow curry powder with a very small spoon, lest everyone should suddenly tear their clothes off and do foreign things. The main ingredients appeared to be swede, and gritty rainwater-tasting sultanas, and the remains of some cold mutton, although William couldn't remember when they'd had the original mutton at any temperature. This was not a problem for the other lodgers. Mrs. Arcanum provided big helpings, and they were men who measured culinary achievements by the amount you got in your plate. It might not taste astonishing, but you went to bed full, and that was what mattered. At the moment, the news of the day was being discussed. Mr. McElduff had bought the Inquirer and both editions of the Times in his role as Keeper of the Fire of Communication. It was generally agreed that the news in the Inquirer was more interesting, although Mrs. Arcanum ruled that the whole subject of snakes was not one for the dinner table and papers ought not to be allowed to disturb people like this. Rains of insects and so on, though, fully confirmed everyone's view of distant lands. Olds, thought William, forensically dissecting a sultana. His lordship was right. Not news, but olds. Telling people what they think they already know is true. The patrician, it was agreed, was a shifty one. The meeting concurred that they were all alike, the lot of them. Mr Windling said the city was in a mess, and there ought to be some changes. Mr Longshaft said that he couldn't speak for the city, but from what he had heard the gemstone business had been very brisk of late. Mr Windling said that it was all right for some. Mr Prone put forth the opinion that the watch could not find their bottom with both hands, a turn of phrase that almost earned him a place at the kitchen table to finish his meal. It was agreed that Vetinari had done it all right, and should be put away. The main course adjourned at 8.45pm, and was followed by disintegrating plums in runny custard, Mr Prone getting slightly fewer plums as an unspoken reprimand. William went up to his room early. He had adapted to Mrs Arcanum's cuisine, but nothing except radical surgery would make him like a coffee. He lay down on the narrow bed in the dark. Mrs Arcanum supplied one candle weekly, and what with one thing and another he'd forgotten to buy any extra and tried to think. Mr Slant walked across the floor of the empty ballroom, his feet echoing on the wood. He took his position in the circle of candlelight with a slight twanging of nerves. As a zombie, he was always a little edgy about fire. He coughed. Well, said a chair. They didn't get the dog, said Mr Slant. In all other respects, I have to say they did a masterly job. How bad could it be if the watch found it? As I understand it, the dog in question is quite old, said Mr Slant into the candlelight. 
I have instructed Mr. Pin to look for it, but I don't believe he will find it easy to get access to the city's canine underground. There are other werewolves here, aren't there? Yes, said Mr. Slant smoothly, but they won't help. There are very few of them, and Sergeant Anger of the Watch is very important in a werewolf community. They won't help strangers, because she will find out. And bring the watch down on them? I believe she would not bother with the watch, said Slant. The dog is probably in some dwarf stewpot by now, said a chair. There was general laughter. If things go wrong, said a chair, who do these men know? They know me, said Mr. Slant. I would not worry unduly. Vimes works by the rules. I've always understood him to be a violent and vicious man, said a chair. Quite so. And because this is what he knows himself to be, he always works by the rules. In any case, the guilds will be meeting tomorrow. Who will be the new patrician? said a chair. That will be a matter for careful discussion and a consideration of all shades of opinion, said Mr. Slant. His voice could have oiled watches. Mr. Slant, said a chair. Yes? Do not try that on us. It is going to be Scrope, isn't it? Mr. Scrope is certainly well thought of by many of the leading figures in the city, said the lawyer. Good. And the musty air was loud with unspoken conversation. Absolutely no one needed to say, a lot of the most powerful men in the city owed their positions to Lord Vetinari. And nobody replied, certainly, but to the kind of men who seek power, gratitude has very poor keeping qualities. The kind of men who seek power tend to deal with matters as they are. They would never try to depose Vetinari, but if he was gone, then they would be practical. No one said, will anyone speak up for Vetinari? Silence replied, oh, everyone. They'll say things like, poor fellow, it was the strain of office, you know. They'll say, it's the quiet ones that crack. They'll say, quite so. We should put him somewhere where he can do no harm to himself or others, don't you think? They'll say, perhaps a small statue would be in order too. They'll say, the least we can do is call off the watch. We owe him that much. They'll say, we must look to the future. And so, quietly, things change. No fuss, and very little mess. No one said, character assassination, what a wonderful idea. Ordinary assassination only works once, but this one works every day. A chair did say, I wondered whether Lord Downey or even Mr. Boggis. Another chair said, oh, come now, why should they? Much better this way. True, true, Mr. Scrope is a man of fine qualities. A good family man, I understand. "'Listens to the common people.' "'Not just to the common people, I trust.' "'Oh, no, he's very open to advice from uh, informed focus groups.' "'He'll need plenty of that.' "'No one said he's a useful idiot.' "'Nevertheless, the watch will have to be brought to heel.' "'Vimes will do what he is told. He must do. "'Scrope will be at least as legitimate a choice as Vetinari was.' Vimes is the kind of man who must have a boss because that gives him legitimacy. Slant coughed. Is that all, gentlemen, he said. What about the Ankh-Morpork Times, said a chair. Bit of a problem shaping up there. People find it amusing, said Mr. Slant, and nobody takes it seriously. The Inquirer outsells it two to one already after just one day, and it is underfinanced, and it has... A uh, difficulty with supplies. Good tale in the Inquirer about that woman and the snake, said a chair. Was there, said Mr. Slant. The chair that had first mentioned the Times had something on its mind. I'd feel happier if a few likely lads smashed up the press, it said. That would attract attention, said a chair. The Times wants attention. The writer craves to be noticed. Oh, well, if you insist... "'I would not dream of insisting, but the times will collapse,' said the chair. "'And this was the chair that the other chairs listened to. "'The young man is also an idealist. "'He has yet to find out what's in the public interest "'is not what the public is interested in.' "'Say again?' "'I mean, gentlemen, that people probably think he's doing a good job, 
but what they are buying is the Inquirer. The news is more interesting. Did I ever tell you, Mr. Slant, that a lie will go round the world before the truth has got its boots on? A great many times, sir, said Slant, with slightly less than his usual keen diplomacy. He realised this and added, A valuable insight, I'm sure. Good. The most important chair sniffed. Keep an eye on our workmen, Mr. Slant. It was midnight in the Temple of Om in the Street of Small Gods, and one light burned in the vestry. It was a candle in a very heavy ornate candlestick, and it was, in a way, sending a prayer to heaven. The prayer, from the Gospel according to the miscreants, was, Don't let anyone find us pinching this stuff. Mr. Pin rummaged in a cupboard. I can't find anything in your size, he said. It looks as though... Oh, no, sheesh! Incense is for burning! Tulip sneezed, pebble-dashing the opposite wall with sandalwood. You could have ain't told me before, he muttered. I've got some papers. Have you been chasing the oven cleaner again? said Mr. Pin accusingly. I want you focused, understand? Now the only thing I can find in here that will fit you... The door creaked open, and a small elderly priest wandered into the room. Mr. Pin instinctively grasped the big candlestick. "'Hello! Are you here for the mm, uh, midnight service?' said the old man, blinking in the light. This time it was Tulip who grabbed Mr. Pin's arm as he raised the candlestick. "'Are you mad? What kind of person are you?' he growled. "'What? We can't let him!' Mr. Tulip snatched the silver stick out of his partner's hand. "'I mean, look at that ing thing, will you?' he said, ignoring the bemused priest. "'That's a genuine Cellini! Five hundred years old! Look at the chasing work on that snuffer, will you?' "'Sheesh to you, it's nothing more than five ink-pounds of silver, right?' "'Actually, it's a fatog, said the old priest, who still hadn't yet got up to mental speed. "'What, the pupil?' said Mr. Tulip, his eyes ceasing their spin out of surprise. He turned the candlestick over and looked at the base. "'Hey, that's right. There's the Cellini mark, but it's stamped with a little F, too. First time I've ever seen his ing-early stuff. He was a better ing-silversmith, too.' It's just a shame he had such a ing stupid name. Do you know how much that'd sell for, Reverend? And we thought about seventy dollars, said the priest, looking hopeful. It was in a lot of furniture that an old lady left her charge. Really, we kept it for sentimental value. Have you still got the box it came in? said Mr. Tulip, turning the candlestick over and over in his hands. He did wonderful ing presentation boxes. Cherrywood. Uh, no, I don't think so. Ing shame. Uh, is it still worth anything? I think we've got another one somewhere. To the right collector, maybe four thousand ing dollars, said Mr. Tulip. But I reckon you could get twelve thousand if you'd got the ing pair. Futtag is very collectible at the moment. Twelve thousand, burbled the old man. His eyes gleamed with a deadly sin. Could be more, Mr. Tulip nodded. It's a ing delightful piece. I feel quite privileged to have seen it. He looked sourly at Mr. Pin. "'And you are going to use it as an ink-blunt instrument!' He put the candlestick reverentially on the vestry table and buffed it carefully with his sleeve. Then he spun round and brought his fist down hard on the head of the priest, who folded up with a sigh. "'And they were just keeping it in a ink-cupboard,' he said. "'Honestly, I could ink-spit!' "'Do you want to take it with us?' said Mr. Pin, stuffing clothes into a bag. "'Nah, all the fences round here probably just melted down for the silver,' said Mr. Tulip. I couldn't have something like that on my ing conscience. Let's find this ing dog and get right out of this dump, shall we? It makes me so ing despondent. William turned over, woke up, and stared wide-eyed at the ceiling. Two minutes later, Mrs. Arcanum came downstairs and into the kitchen, armed with a lamp, a poker, and most importantly, with her hair in curlers. The combination would be a winner against all but the most iron-stomached intruder. Mr. De Word, what are you doing? It's midnight. William glanced up and then went back to opening cupboards. "'Sorry I knocked the saucepans over, Mrs Arcanum. I'll pay for any damage. Now, where are the scales?' "'Scales?' "'Scales! Kitchen scales! Where are they?' "'Mr De Word, I—' "'Where are the damn scales, Mrs Arcanum?' said William desperately. "'Mr De Word, for shame!' "'The future of the city hangs in the balance, Mrs Arcanum.' Perplexity slowly took the place of stern affront. "'What? In my scales?' "'Yes, yes, it could very well be.' "'Well, they're, they're in the pantry by the flower-bag. "'The old city, you say?' "'Quite possibly.' "'William felt his jacket sag as he forced the big brass weights into his pocket. 
"'Use the old potato sack, do,' said Mrs. Arcanum, now quite flustered by events. William grabbed the sack, rammed everything in, and ran for the door. "'The university and the river and everything,' said the landlady nervously. "'Yes, yes, indeed.' Mrs. Arcanum set her jaw. "'You will watch it out thoroughly afterwards, won't you?' she said to his retreating back. William's progress slowed towards the end of the road. Big iron kitchen scales and a full set of weights aren't carried lightly. But that was the point, wasn't it? Wait! He ran and walked and dragged them through the freezing, foggy night until he reached Gleam Street. The lights were still on in the inquiry building. How late do you need to stay up when you can make up the news as you go along, thought William. But this is real. Heavy, even. He hammered on the door of the time shed until the dwarf opened up. The dwarf was amazed to see a frantic William de Word rush past and drop the scales and weights on a desk. "'Please get Mr. Goodmountain up. We've got to get out another edition. And can I have ten dollars, please?' It took Goodmountain to sort things out when, night-shirted but still firmly helmeted, he clambered out of the cellar. "'No, ten dollars!' William was explaining to the bewildered dwarfs. Ten dollar coins, not ten dollars' worth of money.' "'Why?' "'To see how much seventy thousand dollars weigh.' "'We haven't got seventy thousand dollars!' "'Look, even one dollar coin would do,' said William patiently. Ten dollars would just be more accurate, that's all. I can work it out from there.' Ten assorted coins were eventually procured from the dwarf's cash-box and were duly weighed. Then William turned to a fresh page in his notebook and bent his head in ferocious calculation. The dwarfs watched him solemnly, as if he were conducting an alchemical experiment. Finally, he looked up from his figures, the light of revelation in his eyes. "'That's almost a third of a ton,' he said. "'That's how much seventy-thousand-dollar coins weigh.' "'I suppose a really good horse could carry that and a rider, "'but Vetinari walks with a stick. You saw him. "'It'd take him forever to load the horse up, "'and even if he got away he could hardly travel fast. "'Vimes must have worked it out. "'He said the facts were stupid facts.' "'Goodmountain had stationed himself before the rows of cases. "'Ready when you are, Chief,' he said. "'All right,' William hesitated. "'He knew the facts, but what did the facts suggest? "'Ah, uh, make the heading... "'Who framed Lord Vetinari? "'And then the story starts... "'Ah, uh, William watched the hand pounce and grab "'amongst the little boxes of type. "'A, um, Ankh-Morpork City Watch now believe "'that at least one other person was involved in the... "'The... "'Fracas,' suggested Goodmountain. "'No, Rumpus. "'In the attack at the palace on Tuesday morning.' "'William waited until the dwarf had caught up. "'It was getting easier and easier to read the words "'forming in Goodmountain's hands "'as the fingers jumped from box to box.' M-I-G-H-T. You've got an M for an N there, he said. Oh, yes, sorry, carry on. Er, uh, evidence suggests that far from attacking his clerk as believed, Lord Vetinari may have discovered a crime in progress. The hand flew across the type. C-R-I-M-E, space, I-N. It stopped. Are you sure about this? said Goodmountain. No, but it's as good a theory as any other, said William. That horse hadn't been loaded to escape. It had been loaded to be discovered. "'Someone had some plan, and it went wrong. "'I'm sure of that, at least. "'Right. New paragraph. "'A horse in the stables had been loaded with a third of a ton of coins, "'but in his current state of health, the patrician... "'One of the dwarfs had lit the stove. "'Another was stripping out the forms that contained the last edition. "'The room was coming alive again. "'That's about eight inches plus the heading,' said Goodmountain, "'when William had finished. "'That should rattle people. "'You want to add any more stuff? "'Miss Sacharissa did something about Lady Salachi's ball, "'and there's a few small things.' William yawned. He didn't seem to be getting enough sleep these days. "'Put them in,' he said. "'And there's this clax from Lanka that came in when you'd gone home,' said the dwarf. "'That'll cost us another fifty p for the messenger. "'You remember you sent a clax this afternoon about snakes?' he added, in the face of William's blank expression. William read the flimsy sheet of paper. The message had been carefully transcribed in the neat handwriting of the semaphore operator. It was probably the strangest message yet sent on the new technology.' King Verence of Lanka had also mastered the idea that the clacks charged by the word. Women of Lanka, not Rupert, not inhabit, bearing snakes, stop. Children born this month, William Weaver, Constance Thatcher, Catastrophe Carter, all plus arms, legs, minus scales, fangs. Ha! We have them, said William. Give me five minutes and I'll put together a story on this. We shall soon see if the sword of truth can't beat the dragon of lies. Bodney gave him a kind look. "'Didn't you say a lie can run round the world before the truth has got its boots on?' he said. "'But this is the truth!' "'So, where's its boots?' Goodmountain nodded to the other dwarfs, who were yawning. "'You get back to it, lads. I'll put it all together.' He watched them disappear down the ladder to the cellar. Then he sat down, 
took out a small silver box and opened it. "'Snuff,' he said, offering the box to William. "'Best thing you humans ever invented. Watson's Red Roasted. Clears the mind a treat, no?' William shook his head. "'What are you doing all this for, Mr. De Word? said Good Mountain, taking a monstrous suction of snuff up each nostril. "'What do you mean?' "'I'm not saying we don't appreciate it, Mark you,' said Good Mountain. "'It's keeping the money coming in. The jobbing stuff is drying up more every day.' "'Seems like every engraving shop was poised to go over to printing. "'All we did was give the young rips an opening. "'They'll get us in the end, though. "'They've got money behind them. "'I don't mind saying some of the lads are talking about selling up and going back to the lead mines.' "'You can't do that.' "'Ah, well,' said Good Mountain. "'You mean you don't want us to. "'I understand that. "'But we've been putting money by. "'We shall be all right. "'I dare say we can flog the press to someone. "'We might have a spot of cash to take back home.' "'That's what this was all about, Money. "'What were you doing it for?' "'Me? Because—' "'William stopped. "'The truth was he'd never decided to do anything. "'He'd never really made that kind of decision in his whole life. "'One thing had just gently led to another, "'and then the press had to be fed. "'It was waiting there now. "'You worked hard, you fed it, "'and it was still just as hungry an hour later, "'and out in the world all your work was heading for bin six in Piss Harry's, "'and that was only the start of its troubles.' Suddenly he had a proper job, with working hours, and yet everything he did was only as real as a sandcastle, on a beach where the tide only ever came in. "'I don't know,' he admitted. "'I suppose it's because I'm no good at anything else. Now I can't imagine doing anything else. But I heard your family's got pots of money. "'Mr. Goodmountain, I'm useless. I was educated to be useless. What we've always been supposed to do is hang around until there's a war, and do something really stupidly brave, and then get killed.' "'What we've mainly done is hang on to things. "'Ideas, mostly. "'You don't get on with them, then. "'Look, I don't need a heart-to-heart about this, can you understand? "'My father is not a nice man. "'Do I have to draw you a picture? "'He doesn't much like me, and I don't like him. "'If it comes to that, he doesn't like anyone very much, "'especially dwarfs and trolls.' "'No law says you have to like dwarfs and trolls,' said Good Mountain. "'Yes, but there ought to be a law against disliking them the way he does.' "'Ah, now you've drawn me a picture.' "'Maybe you've heard the term lesser races, and now you've coloured it in. "'He won't even live in Ankh-Morpork any more, says it's polluted. "'That's observant of him. No, I mean—' "'Oh, I know what you mean,' said Goodmountain. "'I've met humans like him.' "'You said this was all about money,' said William. "'Is that true?' "'The dwarf nodded at the ingots of lead stacked up neatly by the press. "'We wanted to turn lead into gold,' he said. "'We'd got a lot of lead, but we need gold.' "'William sighed. "'My father used to say that gold is all dwarfs think about.' "'Pretty much.' "'The dwarf took another pinch of snuff. "'But where people go wrong is... "'See, if all a human thinks about is gold, well, he's a miser. "'If a dwarf thinks about gold, he's just being a dwarf. "'It's different. "'What do you call them black humans that live in Hawanderland?' "'I know what my father calls them,' said William, "'but I call them people who live in Hawanderland. "'Do you really? "'Well, I hear tell there's one tribe where, before he can get married,' A man has to kill a leopard and give the skin to the woman. It's the same as that. A dwarf needs gold to get married. What, like a dowry? But I thought dwarfs didn't differentiate between... No, no, the two dwarfs getting married each buy the other dwarf off their parents. Buy? said William. How could you buy people? See? Cultural misunderstanding once again, lad. It costs a lot of money to raise a young dwarf to marriageable age. Food, clothes, chain mail, it all adds up over the years. "'It needs repaying. "'After all, the other dwarf is getting a valuable commodity, "'and it has to be paid for in gold. "'That's traditional. "'Or gems, they're fine too. "'You must have heard our saying, "'Worth his weight in gold. "'Of course, if a dwarf's been working for his parents, "'that gets taken into account on the other side of the ledger. "'Why, a dwarf who's left off marrying until late in his life "'is probably owed quite a tidy sum in wages. "'You're still looking at me in that funny way. "'It's just that we don't do it like that,' mumbled William. "'Good Mountain gave him a sharp look. "'Don't you now?' he said. "'Really? What do you use instead, then?' "'Um, gratitude, I suppose,' said William. "'He wanted this conversation to stop right now. "'It was heading out over thin ice. "'And how's that calculated?' "'Well, it isn't as such. "'Doesn't that cause problems? Sometimes.' "'Ah, well, we know about gratitude, too.' "'but our way means the couple start their new lives in a state of... "'Gudaraka! "'Er, uh, free, unencumbered, new dwarfs. 
Then their parents might well give them a huge wedding present, much bigger than the dowry. But it is between dwarf and dwarf, out of love and respect, not between debtor and creditor. Though I have to say, these human words are not really the best way of describing it. It works for us. It's worked for a thousand years. I suppose to a human it sounds a bit chilly, said William. Good Mountain gave him another studied look. You mean by comparison to the warm and wonderful ways humans conduct their affairs, he said. You don't have to answer that one. Anyway, me and Bodney want to open up a mine together, and we're expensive dwarfs. We know how to work lead, so we thought a year or two of this would see us right. You're getting married? We want to, said Good Mountain. Oh, well, congratulations, said William. He knew enough not to comment on the fact that both dwarfs looked like small barbarian warriors with long beards. All traditional dwarfs looked like that. Most dwarfs were still referred to as he as well, even when they were getting married. It was generally assumed that somewhere under all that chain mail one of them was female, and that both of them knew which one this was. But the whole subject of sex was one that traditionally-minded dwarfs did not discuss, perhaps out of modesty, possibly because it didn't interest them very much, and certainly because they took the view that what two dwarfs decided to do together was entirely their own business. Good Mountain grinned. "'Don't worry too much about your father, lad. People change. My grandmother used to think humans were sort of hairless bears. She doesn't any more.' "'What changed her mind?' "'I reckon it was the dying that did it.' Good Mountain got up and patted William on the shoulder. "'Come on. Let's get the paper finished. We'll start the run when the lads wake up.' Breakfast was cooking when William got back, and Mrs. Arcanum was waiting. Her mouth was set in the firm line of someone hot on the trail of unrespectable behaviour. "'I shall require an explanation of last night's affair,' she said, confronting him in the hallway, "'and a week's notice, if you please.' William was too exhausted to lie. I wanted to see how much seventy thousand dollars weighed, he said. Muscles moved in various areas of the landlady's face. She knew William's background, being the kind of woman who finds out about that kind of thing very quickly, and the twitching was a sign of some internal struggle based around the definite fact that seventy thousand dollars was a respectable sum. I may perhaps have been a little hasty, she ventured. Did you find how much the money weighed? Yes, thank you. "'Would you like to keep the scales for a few days "'in case you want to weigh any more?' "'I think I've finished weighing, Mrs Arcanum, "'but thank you all the same. "'Breakfast has already begun, Mr DeWord, "'but, well, perhaps I can make allowances this time.' "'He was given a second boiled egg, too. "'This was a rare sign of favour. "'The latest news was already the subject of deep discussion. "'I'm frankly amazed,' said Mr Cartwright. "'It beats me how they find this stuff out. "'It certainly makes you wonder what's going on "'that we aren't told,' said Mr Windling.' William listened for a while until he couldn't wait any longer. "'Something interesting in the paper?' he asked innocently. "'A woman in Kickleberry Street says her husband has been kidnapped by elves,' said Mr Mackleduff, holding up the inquirer. The heading was very clear on the subject. "'Elves stole my husband.' "'That's made up,' said William. "'Can't be,' said Mackleduff. "'There's the lady's name and address right here. They wouldn't put that in the paper if they were telling lies, would they?' William looked at the name and address. "'I know this lady,' he said. "'There you are, then. "'She was the one last month who said her husband had been carried off "'by a big silver dish that came out of the sky,' said William, "'who had a good memory for this sort of thing. "'He'd nearly put it in his newsletter as an on a lighter note, "'but had thought better of it. "'And you, Mr Prone, said everyone knew her husband had carried himself off "'with a lady called Flo, who used to work as a waitress in Hargus House of Ribs.' "'Mrs Arcanum gave William a sharp look.' which said that the whole subject of nocturnal kitchenware theft could be reopened at any time, extra egg or no. "'I am not partial to that kind of talk at the table,' she said coldly. "'Well, then, it's obvious,' said Mr Cartwright. "'He must have come back.' "'From the silver dish or from Flo?' said William. "'Mr the word.' "'I was only asking,' said William. "'Ah, I see they're revealing the name of the man who broke into the jewellers the other day. Shame it's done it, Duncan, poor chap.' "'A notorious criminal, by the sound of it,' said Mr. Windling. "'It's shocking that the watch won't arrest him.' "'Especially since he calls on them every day,' said William. "'Whatever for?' "'A hot meal and a bed for the night,' said William. "'Dunnit Duncan confesses to everything, you see. "'Original sin, murders, minor thefts, everything. "'When he's desperate, he tries to turn himself in for the reward.' "'Then they ought to do something about him,' said Mrs. Arcanum. "'I believe they generally give him a mug of tea,' said William. "'He paused and then ventured.' "'Is there anything in the other paper?' "'Oh, they're still trying to say that Vetinari didn't do it,' said Mr. Mackleduff. "'And the King of Lanka says women of Lanka don't give birth to snakes.' "'Well, he would say that, wouldn't he?' said Mrs. Arcanum. 
"'Vetinari must have done something,' said Mr. Windling. "'Otherwise why would he be helping the watch with their inquiries? "'That's not the action of an innocent man, in my humble opinion.' "'The best way to describe Mr. Windling would be like this. "'You're at a meeting. "'You'd like to be away early, so would everyone else. "'There really isn't very much to discuss, anyway.' and just as everyone can see any other business coming over the horizon and is already putting their papers neatly together, a voice says, "'If I can raise a minor matter, Mr. Chairman, and with a horrible wooden feeling in your stomach, you know, now, that the evening will go on for twice as long, with much referring back to the minutes of earlier meetings. The man who has just said that, and is now sitting there with a smug smile of dedication to the committee process, is as near Mr. Windling as makes no difference.' and something that distinguishes the Mr. Windlings of the universe is the term, in my humble opinion, which they think adds weight to their statements, rather than indicating in reality, these are the mean little views of someone with the social grace of duckweed. "'I believe there's plenty of evidence that throws doubt on his guilt,' said William. "'Really?' said Mr. Windling, making the word suggest that William's opinion was considerably more humble than his. "'Anyway, I understand the guild leaders are meeting today.' He sniffed. "'It's time for a change. Frankly, we could do with a ruler who is a little more responsive to the views of ordinary people.' William glanced at Mr. Longshaft the dwarf, who was peacefully cutting some toast into soldiers. Perhaps he hadn't noticed. Perhaps there was nothing to notice, and William was being oversensitive. But years of listening to Lord de Word's opinions had given him a certain ear. It told him when phrases like the views of ordinary people, innocent and worthy in themselves, were being used to mean that somebody should be whipped.' "'How do you mean?' he said. "'The city is getting too big,' said Mr. Windling. "'In the old days the gates were kept shut, not left open to all and sundry, "'and people could leave their doors unlocked. "'We didn't have anything worth stealing,' said Mr. Cartwright. "'That's true. There's more money around,' said Mr. Prone. "'It doesn't all stay here, though,' said Mr. Windling. "'That was true, at least. "'Sending money home was the major export activity of the city, "'and dwarfs were right at the front of it.' William also knew that most of it came back again, because dwarfs bought from the best dwarf craftsmen, and, mostly, the best dwarf craftsmen worked in Ankh-Morpork these days, and they sent money back home. A tide of gold coins rolled back and forth and seldom had a chance to go cold, but it upset the windlings of the city. Mr Longshaft quietly picked up his boiled egg and inserted it into an egg cup. "'There's just too many people in the city,' Mr Windling repeated. "'I've nothing against—' "'Outsiders, heaven knows, but Vetinari let it go too far. "'Everyone knows we need someone who is prepared to be a little more firm.' "'There was a metallic noise. "'Mr. Longshaft, still staring fixedly at his egg, "'had reached down and drawn a smallish but still impressively axe-like axe from his bag. "'Watching the egg carefully, as if it was about to run away, "'he leaned slowly back, paused for a moment, "'then brought the blade round in an arc of silver.' The top of the egg flew up with hardly a noise, turned over in mid-air several feet above the plate, and landed beside the egg cup. Mr. Longshaft nodded to himself, and then looked up at the frozen expressions. "'I'm sorry,' he said. "'I wasn't listening.' At which point, as Sakarissa would have put it, the meeting broke up. William purchased his own copy of the Inquirer on the way to Gleam Street and wondered not for the first time who was writing this stuff. They were better at it than he would be, that was certain. He'd wondered once about making up a few innocent paragraphs when not much was happening in the city, and found that it was a lot harder than it looked. Try as he might, he kept letting common sense and intelligence get the better of him. Besides, telling lies was wrong. He noted glumly that they'd used the talking dog story. Oh, and one he hadn't heard before. A strange figure had been seen swooping around the rooftops of Unseen University at night. Half man, half moth. Half invented and half made up, more likely. The curious thing was, if the breakfast-table jury was anything to go by, that denying stories like this only proved that they were true. After all, no one would bother to deny something if it didn't exist, would they? He took a short cut through the stables in Creek Alley. Like Gleam Street, Creek Alley was there to mark the back of places. This part of the city had no real existence other than as a place you passed through to somewhere more interesting. The dull street was made up of high-windowed warehouses and broken-down sheds and, significantly, Hobson's livery stable. It was huge, especially since Hobson had realised that you could go multi-storey. Willie Hobson was another businessman in the mould of the King of the Golden River. He'd found a niche, occupied it, and forced it open so wide that lots of money dropped in. 
Many people in the city occasionally needed a horse, and hardly anyone had a place to park one. You needed a stable, you needed a groom, you needed a hayloft. But to hire a horse from Willie, you just needed a few dollars. Lots of people kept their own horses there too. People came and went all the time. The bandy-legged, goblin-like little men who ran the place never bothered to stop anyone unless they appeared to have hidden a horse about their person. William looked round when a voice out of the gloom of the loose boxes said, "'Excuse me, friend.' He peered into the shadows. A few horses were watching him. In the distance, around him, other horses were being moved. People were shouting. There was the general bustle of the stables. But the voice had come out of a little pool of ominous silence. "'I've still got two months to go on my last receipt,' he said to the darkness. "'And may I say that the free canteen of cutlery seemed to be made of an alloy of lead and horse manure?' "'I'm not a thief, friend.' said the shadows. Who's there? Do you know what's good for you? Er, uh, yes. Healthy exercise, regular meals, a good night's sleep. William stared at the long lines of loose boxes. I think what you meant to ask was, do I know what's bad for me? In the general context of blunt instruments and sharp edges, yes? Broadly, yes. No, don't move, mister. You stand where I can see you and no harm will come to you. William analysed this. "'Yes, but if I stand where you can't see me, "'I don't see how any harm could come to me there, either.' "'Something sighed. "'Look, meet me halfway here. "'No, don't move. "'But you just said to... "'Just stand still and shut up and listen, will you?' "'All right.' "'I am hearing where there's a certain dog "'that people are looking for,' said the mystery voice. "'Ah, yes, the watch want him, yes. "'And?' "'William thought he could just make out a slightly darker shape. "'More importantly... He could smell a smell, even above the general background odour of the horses. "'Ron?' he said. "'Do I sound like Ron?' said the voice. "'Not exactly. So who am I talking to?' "'You can call me Deep Bone.' "'Deep Bone? Anything wrong with that?' "'I suppose not. What can I do for you, Mr Bone?' "'Just supposing someone knew where the doggy was, but didn't want to get involved with the watch.' said the voice of Deep Bone. Why not? Let's just say the watch can be trouble to a certain kind of person, eh? That's one reason. All right. And let's just say there's people around who'd much prefer the little doggy didn't tell what he knew, shall we? The watch might not take enough care. They're very uncaring about dogs, the watch. Are they? Oh, yes. The watch think a dog has no human rights at all. That's another reason. Is there a third reason? Yeah. I read in the paper where there's a reward. Ah, uh, yes. Only it got printed wrong, cos it said $25 instead of $100, see? Oh, I see. But $100 is a lot of money for a dog, Mr Bone. Not for this dog, if you know what I mean, said the shadows. This dog's got a story to tell. Oh, yes. It's the famous talking dog of Ankh-Morpork, is it? Deep Bone growled. Dogs can't talk, everyone knows that. "'But there's them as can understand dog language if you catch my drift.' "'Werewolves, you mean?' "'Could be people of that type of kidney, yes.' "'But the only werewolf I know is in the watch,' said William. "'So you're just telling me to pay you a hundred dollars "'so that I could hand waffles over to the watch?' "'That'd be a feather in your cap with old Vimes, wouldn't it?' said Deep Bone. "'But you said you didn't trust the watch, Mr Bone. "'I do listen to what people say, you know.' Deep Bone went quiet for a while. "'Then, all right.' The dog and an interpreter, $150. And the story this dog could tell deals with events in the palace a few mornings ago? Could be, could be, could very well be. Could be exactly the kind of thing I'm referring to. I want to see who I'm talking to, said William. Can't do that. Oh, well, said William. That's reassuring. I'll just go and get $150, shall I, and bring it back to this place and hand it over to you just like that. Good idea. Not a chance. Oh, "'So you don't trust me, eh?' said Deep Bone. "'That's right. "'Er, uh, supposing I was to tell you a little piece of free news information for gratis and nothing. "'A lick of the lolly, a little taste style of thing. "'Go on. "'It wasn't Veterinari who stabbed the other man. "'It was another man.' "'William wrote this down and then looked at it. "'Exactly how helpful is this?' he said. "'That's a bit of good news, that is. "'Hardly anyone knows it. "'There's not a lot to know.' "'Isn't there a description?' "'He's got a dog bite on his ankle,' said Deep Bone. "'That'll make him easy to find in the street, won't it? "'What are you expecting me to do, "'try a little surreptitious trouser lifting?' "'Deep Bone sounded hurt. 
That's kosher news, that is. It'd worry certain people if you put that in your paper. Yes, they'd worry that I'd gone mad. You've got to tell me something better than that. Can you give me a description? Deepbone went silent for a while, and when the voice spoke again it sounded uncertain. You mean, what he looked like, it said. Well, yes. Ah, well, it don't work like that with dogs, see? What, uh, what your average dog does, basically, is look up. People are mostly just a wall with a pair of nostril holes at the top, is my point. Not a lot of help, then, said William. Sorry we can't do biz... What he smells like, now that's something else, said the voice of Deep Bone hurriedly. All right, tell me what he smells like. Do I see a pile of cash in front of me? I don't think so. Well, Mr Bone, I'm not even going to think about getting that kind of money together until I've got some proof that you really know something. All right, said the voice from the shadows after a while. You know there's a committee to unselect the patrician. Now that's news. What's new about that? People have plotted to get rid of him for years. There was another pause. You know, said Deepbone, it'd save a lot of trouble if you just gave me the money and I told you everything. So far you haven't told me anything. Tell me everything, then I'll pay you, if it's the truth. Oh, yeah, pull one of the others, it's got bells on. Then it looks like we can't do business, said William, putting his notebook away. Wait, wait, this'll do. You asked Vimes what Veterinary did just before the attack. Why, what did he do? See if you can find out. That's not a lot to go on. There was no reply. William thought he heard a shuffling noise. Hello? He waited a moment, and then very carefully stepped forward. In the gloom, a few horses turned to look at him. Of an invisible informant, there was no sign. A lot of thoughts jostled for space in his mind as he headed out into the daylight, but surprisingly enough, it was a small and theoretically unimportant one that kept oozing into centre stage. What kind of expression was... Pull one of the others, it's got bells on. Now, pull the other one, it's got bells on, he'd heard of. It stemmed from the days of a crueler-than-usual ruler in Ankh-Morpork who had had any Morris dancers ritually tortured. But one of the others? There was a sense in that. Then it struck him. Deep bone must be a foreigner. It made sense. It was like the way Otto spoke perfectly good Morporkian but hadn't got the hang of colloquialisms. He made a note of this. He smelled the smoke at the same time as he heard the pottery clatter of golem feet. Four of the clay people thudded past him carrying a long ladder. Without thinking, he fell in behind, automatically turning to a new page in his notebook. Fire was always the terror in those parts of the city where wood and thatch predominated. That was why everyone had been so dead set against any form of fire brigade, reasoning, with impeccable Ankh-Morpork logic, that any bunch of men who were paid to put out fires would naturally see to it that there was a plentiful supply of fires to put out. Golems were different. They were patient, hard-working, intensely logical, virtually indestructible, and they volunteered. Everyone knew golems couldn't harm people. There was some mystery about how the golem fire brigade had got formed. Some said the idea had come from the watch, but the generally held theory was that golems simply would not allow people and property to be destroyed. With eerie discipline and no apparent communication, they would converge on a fire from all sides, rescue any trapped people, secure and carefully pile up all portable property, form a bucket chain along which the buckets moved at a blur, trample every last ember, and then hurry back to their abandoned tasks. These four were hurrying to a blaze in Treacle Mine Road. Tongues of fire curled out of first-floor rooms. "'Are you from a paper?' said a man in the crowd. "'Yes,' said William. "'Well, I reckon this is another case of mysterious spontaneous combustion, just like you reported yesterday.' And he craned his neck to see if William was writing this down. William groaned. Sacharissa had reported a fire in Lobin Clout, in which one poor soul had died and had left it at that, but the inquirer had called it a mystery fire. "'I'm not sure that one was very mysterious,' he said. "'Old Mr Hardy decided to light a cigar and forgot he was bathing his feet in turpentine. Apparently someone had told him this was a cure for athlete's foot, and, well, in a way, they'd been right.' "'That's what they say,' said the man, tapping his nose. "'But there's a lot we don't get told.' "'That's true,' said William. I heard only the other day that giant rocks hundreds of miles across crash into the country every week, but a patrician hushes it up. There you are, then, said the man. It's amazing the way they treat us as if we're stupid. Yes, it's a puzzle to me, too, said William. Gangvig, gangvig, please. Otto pushed through the onlookers, struggling under the weight of a device the size and general shape of an accordion. He elbowed his way to the front of the crowd, balanced the device on its tripod, and aimed it at a golem who was climbing out of a smoking window, holding a small child. 
All right, boys, this is the big one, he said, and raised the flash cage. One, two, three. Ah, 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 ah. The vampire became a cloud of gently settling dust. For a moment, something hovered in the air. It looked like a small jar on a necklace made of string, then it fell and smashed on the cobbles. The dust mushroomed up, took on a shape, and Otto stood blinking and running his hands over himself to check that he was all there. He caught sight of William and gave him the kind of big, broad smile that only a vampire can give. "'Mr. William, it worked your idea!' Uh, "'Which one?' said William. A thin plume of yellow smoke was creeping out from under the lid of the big iconograph. "'You said carry a little drop of emergency bee-word,' said Otto. "'So, I thought, if it is in a little bottle around my neck, then if I crumble to dust, hoopla, it will crash and smash, and here I am!' He lifted the lid of the iconograph and waved the smoke away. There was a sound of a very small coughing from within. "'And, if I am not mistaken, we have a successfully etched picture, all of which only goes to show what we can achieve when our brains are not clouded by thoughts of open windows and bare necks, which never cross my mind at all these days, because I am completely B-total.' Otto had made changes to his clothing. Away had gone the traditional black evening dress preferred by his species, to be replaced by an armless vest containing more pockets than William had ever seen on one garment. Many of them were stuffed with packets of imp food, extra paint, mysterious tools, and other essentials of the iconographer's art. In deference to tradition, though, Otto had made it black with a red silk lining and had added tails. End of CD 6